Welcome to Books Sandwiched In. Our speaker today, Dean Rice, is Chief of Staff for Knox County. And in addition, he works at the University of Tennessee's College of Communication and Information Science as an adjunct faculty member. He served as a legislative and policy aide on on issues of energy, federal budget, and national defense for members of the U.S. House and Senate during the mid to late 1990s. I'm sure many of those issues are going to be touched upon today as he reviews George Friedman's book, The Next 100 Years. It's my pleasure to welcome Dean Rice. Thank you very much, Ms. Gill. So thank you for allowing me the chance to be here. This is, I'm excited to be part of this. And when we say put a plug in for the Friends, though, there are very few organizations in Knox County that do more that touch the lives of the residents here. So if you are not a member of the Friends, become one. And those who are, thank you very much for what you all do. That's absolutely. The book uh, is by George Freeman, and he's an interesting fellow. He's, this is a man who was born uh, to two Holocaust survivors and in Budapest, Hungary. And he was then later, during communism, they escaped Hungary and they went to Austria where he lived in a refugee area. And from there they migrated to the United States. He went to City College in New York and studied political science and then he got his PhD in political science and taught for about 20 years. And along the way he began doing some consulting for the U.S. government as well as for organizations like the Rand Corporation and others in forecasting. And he now runs the largest private intelligence and forecasting organization, how many there are to say the largest, there may be two, I don't know, but he's, he's based in Texas where his wife is also the vice president of the company, and they've written a number of books together. But it's, it's interesting to, to look at this in terms of what's going on today, and when was asked to do a book discussion and chose this book, really did not realize how relevant it's going to be to today's discussion, because what he's looking at is, those who've read it, is how geopolitics shifts and natural, national interests come to play and will come to bear over the time, and he lays out a very logical series of events that's going to cause the redefining of national powers around globally, one of them being looking at Russia and its interests. And he discusses early in the book the fact that Russia, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, was weakened and was felt like it was no longer the great empire and that the, the people of Russia desired to have that, that, that national pride and their national interests are going to require them to push out once again. And we see that playing out today explicitly with their annexation of Crimea and their continued engagement in Ukraine throughout that eastern region. You see it also in what uh, President Putin's policy with Syria, where it's putting us on our heels a little bit because he's continuing to prop up the Assad administration and meddle. And so you, you, you see that, you see exactly what Friedman predicted in 08 when he wrote this, which no one was discussing it. It was published in 09. No one was discussing these issues, but they're coming to bear exactly the way that, that he laid it out here. And so based on that, I think he has some credibility. Now, whether or not credibility looking at 2080 and our relationship with Mexico is going to be 
the same. I don't, I don't know. But I would be very interested in hearing anyone's initial impressions about the book in a few minutes. I'll tell you just briefly, though, my interest in this, uh, this topic and global affairs. And I had the chance in 1986 to be in Poland, and that was before the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course. And Poland was a satellite state. And I remember walking in Krakow at the time, and they have a large open market there. And this older Polish lady came over to me and took my arm, and she spoke very broken English, and she said, don't forget about us. Don't forget about us. And then she shuffled off, and that was her only message. And that, you know, I was there because I loved Eastern Europe, and I had a, have, since I was five, I had an interest in, in that part of the world. But her comments to me there really stuck with me. And I remember being in a church there in, um, in Poland one Sunday morning, and the, and the pastor was praying and praying and praying. And I didn't understand the words, but he ended up, I asked a friend who's Polish, and he said, no, he was praying for you, that God would bless you and would bless America. And not praying, he wasn't praying that the Soviet Union would collapse. He was praying that God would bless us and would bless our country. And it showed me how closely tied the Polish people are to, to two things. One is to the absolute thirst for freedom. There are no people that I've ever been around that are more hungry for freedom than the people then in the 80s in Poland. And you see that play out after the collapse. The, the Poland has become a regional power based in large part because of their desire to be free and have a judicial system that's fair, that allows investment, and they, they hunger for the same things that we as a country hunger for, a stable economy, a free society, and free and fair elections and those things. And you see, and Friedman has Poland as one of the three countries that emerges after Russia to become a global power. And the other, I had an opportunity several times to be in Turkey, and that's a, a second country that, that he talks about in here. And I remember the times that I've been there, the Turkish people are very similar to the Polish people in terms of there's a natural affinity to the United States. Some of my closest friends are, are Turkish here in, in Knoxville that have immigrated from Turkey. And they're, they're, the value system, everything is very, very similar, and you are welcomed there in Turkey. And so those... But it's also based in the same free and fair democracy, based in an economic system that's stable, allowing for investments. And so in Friedman's talk of Turkey and its, its expansion after the collapse of Russia, and we can talk about that in more detail, but the same, I, see, I see the same that I saw in, in Poland. And you look geographically where, where Turkey is. Of course, it's going to, be this, it's going to continue to be central. And one, one point that Friedman makes that I think is fascinating is that National interests have very little wiggle room. You can have a president that has a certain policy, a Congress that has a certain policy to drive on a specific thing, whether it's embargo of Syria or this or that. But if you pull back to the 30,000-foot level, countries are moving in toward their national interest at a glacial pace, but they're, go- they're moving. And there's very little that at a, one moment in time you can do to change that. And he stresses that America's interests are ultimately to control the seas. That begins with an interest to control the borders, but that expands to an interest to control both the Atlantic and the Pacific, and that everything that we do as a nation in terms of foreign policy is driven, whether consciously or unconsciously, about controlling the seas. And later he goes into space also. But that, that was fascinated me, that we don't really have, it does whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or this or that, long term, if you're looking at a 20 years, 
the countries are moving in directions that that are set based on those national interests. Russia, the same thing. Russia has historically had to have buffer zones, and he stresses that over and over again. Moscow can't allow itself to be where the borders are today because in 88, there was a a thousand miles between Moscow and NATO countries. Today, there's a hundred miles between St. Petersburg and NATO, 200 miles between Moscow, and that can't remain, according to Friedman. He said that the national interest will not allow that. Russia must begin to get its buffer zone. It must do what it has done in Crimea. That's just a natural movement. They have to control the Black Sea. They have to, and so in laying that out, we see it coming to play every day. Yesterday, Russia announced that it was going to stop the gas pipeline going into Ukraine and allow only gas going through, flowing through to Europe, just to punish Ukraine. Ukraine will have to respond, and that, that conflict will continue to build. Uh, he stresses that Russia has moved away from being an industrial de- country to being a natural resource country, exporting, and that is what they've done, exporting of natural gas, very reliant on that. And that will continue, but he lays out problems that that then results in. And so every, if, as you read through it, there are big gaps, but there are, there are trends that, that logically play out, and it's a fascinating read. And you know, in one way, you can say, well, what does it matter what happens foreign policy-wise, and, and I think culturally we're at a point after Iraq and after all that we've gone through in the past 10 years to say, let's pull back. Why put money overseas when we can, let's build a school here, not a school there. And that, that's very logical, but it's also you begin to look and see, if we don't, who will? And if they do, where does that leave us? And are the as a nation, are we willing to say, okay, we're willing, we're willing to just put our borders up here and be ourselves, just huddle in here? Because if we do that, dynamics change, and we find ourselves in second place and third place. And is that something we want, or do we continue to have the idea that we, do, we are a global a country? We are engaged whether we like it or not. And Friedman makes the case that we are engaged. And another, to- another area that he covers that is interesting is immigration. He makes a case that, and he says there's no explanation for it, but every 50 years there's a crisis in America, and going all the way back to the founding. And he goes through talking about the initial pioneer movement and the monetary system of Andrew Jackson, and that that led to the next crisis following the Civil War. And he lays out these cases without going into all the details. Every 50 years we face some type of national crisis that redefines how we're moving politically. The one that he says that will happen in 2030 is going to be related to workforce. And he makes a fascinating case about population growth. And for the first time, really in history, we're facing a a decline in birth rates and the impact that that will have. You know, I remember growing up and being told, you know, the population is going to explode and the planet's not going to have resources and the food and all. And that's based on trajectories that were there in the case were, were true based on the value system and based on the economies that we had that were where children were valued in the workforce. Where, and as that's changed, society changes. Females are in the workforce now. They're, not, they're no longer that old traditional, we're not in the workforce. That continues to grow and improve the economy. And as that happens, it's cyclical, and you have a declining birth rate. He says that the, 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 the number is 2.1%, that if 
couples have 2.1 children, then on average there is a, there is a growth. Anything below that stabilizes and drops down. We're now at 1.7. He says we're supposed to drop to 1.6 and further down. And his case is that as the workforce changes in America, our migration, immigration policy is going to have to change. And he says that the next 50 years crisis is going to be when the United States has to, has to redefine its immigration policy and welcome in more and more workforce to, in order to fill the gap. And that, he says, I think in 2028 presidential election will be the issue and redefines our current policy. And so you have migration, immigration policy, which is talked about all the time right now. You have Ukraine talked about right now. You have Turkey talked about in regards to Syria right now. So everything that he's touching on, you read and think, ah, that's, I saw this in the headline yesterday. I saw this last week. I heard this on NPR. I heard this talked about on Hal Hill. I, these, there are topics that are popping up throughout the book that are very, very relevant to today. Um, but I, one thing that I disagree with, or I, not disagree, but I, everything is contingent in his book on Russia falling apart at some point in the next 10, 15 years. It's, it's, they, they, they overreach, and then there's this vacuum. They, they collapse. He doesn't explain, in my mind, he doesn't explain well enough why that happens. Everything after that makes sense, but the fact that Russia no longer is a world player, it, do, it doesn't really add up in the book. Now, maybe he has his arguments, maybe he, he lays it out in his mind, but he didn't explain it, at least in my mind. I didn't, I didn't walk away saying, okay, that makes sense, that will happen. It does make sense that they expand. Beyond that, I don't see the catalyst that makes them decline. In China, he, he lays out a case that right now we see China as this emerging global power that's going to continue. And he said that no nation in history has ever continued at the trajectory that China's on economically right now, that they, they can't sustain that. And he sees them moving more toward a pre-Mao regionalist factioned country that's looking internally only and not looking for global expansion. He makes the case, therefore, that Japan then extends its reach into because they have to have resources. They're not a natural resource country. They're expanding their reach in Eurasia. And in his, in his case, ultimately what happens is Turkey and Japan both expanding because of the gaps, the vacuums. They both expand and they meet. Their interests are allied. America's interests, he makes the case, is, in, is strongly supportive of both because he makes the case that America's interest is in keeping no one power, allowing no one power that could build a navy to expand, become too strong. Because he says that he makes the statement that the number one imperative for American policy is and always will be controlling the seas. So we cannot allow a one nation. And so we support Turkey growing. We support Japan growing because that's good. It keeps Russia down, it keeps China down, and we're okay with it. And then at some point, they get together, and all of a sudden we're looking at the possibility of an allied power that has reach from Vladivostok over in the east all the way to the Mediterranean and all the oceans in between, and we can't deal with that. And there's a war. And so he lays out the fun chapter in here is about the war. 
and it comes in 2060, and it's so specific that he gets into, at 1123, Japan will have launched its missiles from the moon, hitting our Death Star. And he, 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 says, he says, you ask why I call it a Death Star, because I think the name's cool. But <laughs> it's these giant satellites, and we're, we're in this great conflict, and they wipe us out, or our, our hypersonic jets are wiped out, and then we rebuild, and they underestimate, and this and that. All of that is like a movie when we went and saw Tom Cruise's recent movie where he keeps coming back to life. So it's similar to that. And it's, it's, you're reading foreign policy and then you hit into the Flash Gordon type of, of, of chapter. Um, but it, it, is, it is interesting, though, that these conflicts, he says, one point that he does make, everything will change in the next war. It's a war fought from space, and it's a war fought with hypersonic. But the one thing that doesn't change and never has changed is the fog of war, the underestimating and the overestimating of the enemies, and that what begins as a tension becomes a bloody conflict because neither side trusts the other, and there's no, there's no willingness to accept another power. And there's, there's this built-in, almost genetic sense of distrust in a, con, in a conflict like that, and it leads to us overreaching, them overreaching or underreaching, and that doesn't change. And I think that's, that's a fair statement. Whatever the weapon's going to be, the confusion of war and foreign government's intentions remains foggy. And that's, so that's, that's one point that he did make that I thought was accurate in, in that regard. And the book ends, fascinatingly, with America rising after the war. Great power. There are no other powers and here we are in North America. We've changed our migration policy in the 2030s to allow for immigration from Mexico. It moves up. Population grows. Not the legal border, but the cultural and demographic border of America has now gone back to the pre-Guadalupe boundaries of 1848 or something. And so it's going up above Nevada. And that is 80 to 90 percent Mexican population, which then reflects in Washington and representation. And you have a situation that the problem of migration and workforce was solved in the 30s. And now in the 80s and 2080, it becomes the next crisis, the 50-year crisis, is that we are now in a situation where you're, and he ends it very strangely, and I don't think we would ever certainly get there, with a debate on whether to, to try and push a population back into legal boundaries of Mexico. And he says that's not tenable. And so the struggle ends with, and he ends the book by talking about that North America is squarely the power going into the 22nd century, but the question will be whether the capital will be Washington or Mexico City. And so it's fascinating, and he plays a lot into the xenophobias that, that will result because of population changes and those things. And you see that even now in little ways here and there, but he makes a case that over, over the next hundred years that there'll be enough of a cultural and demographic change in the United States that United States and Mexico will be in conflict, not a war conflict, but a conflict of who, who will be the ultimate North American power, Mexico or the United States. And he says, you know, don't, don't think it's too silly because look back and say, okay, in 1850, who would have ever thought that the United States was going to be the dominant power globally? 1950, 
the United States was the dominant power globally. And so 100 years, a lot can change and a lot can shift. And so that's, you know, that's some, a point throughout the book. So whether it's Mexico or this or Palau or something, who knows? But he, one thing he does say is that common knowledge, what makes sense, never works out that way. What we assume today, based on our factors that we are guided by today, is going to be different tomorrow. And so we expect the unexpected. But do, do it in a framework of understanding national interests and understanding population growths and declines, workforce, economies. And you can sort of see there, we don't know which track they rail they will go on, but they will be on a rail. There will not be a lot of ability to shift that. It's moving. It's just a matter of which specific track they're taking. And that's sort of a, a summary in my mind of what, what he hit on. But are there any, any comments? Yes, Mary Palm. This sounds like a great book, and I can't wait to read it, but I haven't read it yet. So two questions. Yeah. One is, um, does he talk about the impact of climate change on geopolitical machinations? Mm-hmm. And in Jared Diamond's book, he talks about super, the superpowers, the power that controls power. You know, so mm-hmm. in the you know, Spanish Armada, they controlled the wind and the seas. Okay. The Dutch controlled the whale fat, which apparently was <laughs> a big power. Yeah. Then, you know, England, the coal, we controlled the gas and the coal in the last. But the person who really has um, control of the power is the superpower. Absolutely. Or yeah. the energy, I should say, is the superpower. Does he talk about that? He, he doesn't. On your first question on climate, he does not address that. There are several large areas that he just does not touch. That he doesn't touch climate change. He never mentions Canada until the last three pages or something, and it's just mentioned in passing, where he makes such a case based on borders and resources and the United States' self-interest on those borders. He's focused on Mexico, but he never mentions Canada. And I, if I was Canadian, I'd be highly offended that I, didn't, I was, did not at some point get to invade. But on the, the second, the, he does talk about that. He talks about it toward the end, the shift in his prediction and this is more of a prediction than an assumption, he says that we will have the technology to harness electricity from space satellites that will be traveled to Earth via a microwave and will be converted to battery power. And I have no idea. We never got to that in the Senate or the House. But uh, <laughs> just, Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, well, as a matter of fact, you got to part of the point I was going to make. Uh, he doesn't address energy until post this gigantic war. Uh, and what he proposes was actually proposed uh, 50 years ago now by a guy named Peter Glazer. And uh, NASA and the federal government and DOD have plowed tens of millions into it and gotten absolutely nowhere. We've so, done that in a number uh, of areas. It's, it's pie in the sky, almost literally. <laughs> baked yeah. pie, well-baked pie in the sky. We're going to run out of all the energy resources. Plus, we're running out of water. We're running out of uh, land you know, that's cultivatable for food. I mean, th- this guy is uh, definitely missing a lot. And you're the president of the Optimus Club? Uh, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, though. That's, that's, yeah. Yes, sir. Um, I wonder two things. One, what about India? India, 1.x billion people. Mm-hmm. 150 years ago, the Indian army was a, one of the cornerstones of the British Empire, and uh, perhaps they've grown stronger since. Um, secondly, food, and notably fish, which was in the headlines this week with Obama's uh, declaration mm-hmm. of a new maritime zone, 
Uh, fish is probably the biggest thing that we're running out of first. Hmm. In, in terms of the geopolitics of India, he has India becoming aligned with the United States for its self-preservation based on it sort of lies at that pincer point between Turkey and Japan's empire rising. And so India plays a role in support of the United States later, and with Poland being our, our other ally in, in pushing back up through the Balkans, the, the Turkish push ahead. And so... But he does not. He does not address energy sufficiently, and he certainly doesn't address food sources. Yes, yes uh, sir, Dean. You mentioned the Balkans. I was in Eastern Europe last month, and in the Balkans. And one thing that surprised me, and after listening to you and thinking about the book, it shouldn't surprise me, but was the control that Turkey has in that region. One of the largest banks, several of the largest banks in Macedonia were Turkish banks. The uh, one of the biggest chain stores there was a Turkish concern. Uh, the airport was built, managed, and operated by a Turkish company. And, but then when you look at a map, it makes sense that Turkey should you know, be a force in that region. And actually, if you think about it, my grandfather, when he was a young man, that was part of the Ottoman Empire. But Absolutely was. Still, it did yeah. surprise me. Turkey is a, is a force, and it's a force today. So. Absolutely it is. Its economy, you know, for years, for the past seven or eight years, they've been trying to become a member of the EU, and have been pushed back. They now are saying, we don't need the EU. I think they're... Their economic growth has excelled the EU for the past five years straight. They are exporting. The construction is an incredibly growing industry for Turkey. And if you look at the, the Turkey, not as a, the geopolitical border that it is now, but you look at the Turkic people, there's a, such an affiliation all the way over to Azerbaijan on the Caspian Sea. And I had the chance to go there for a thing called Eurovision. It's like the Super Bowl of music, where every country sends in a cheesy song, and they all compete late at night, and it's sort of the disco feel of the world. But it's very, very popular there. So I got to go to Baku for, for that and had dinner at uh, the vice president of Sokar, which is this uh, state-owned oil corporation for Azerbaijan. And one thing that he was explaining to me is that during the Soviet Union days, Azerbaijan was the primary supplier of, of oil to the Soviet Union from the Caspian Sea resources. Now, they're a very wealthy country. They don't have to supply to the boss in Moscow. They are able to take their resources and invest it into themselves, and you see amazing infrastructure re being rebuilt. And the Azerbaijani people and the Turkic people, they're the same people. They are very close. There's, there's like a brother-sister relationship, and with the exception of Armenia right there, that's sort of the gap in there. But when you look at it from that standpoint, Turkey could easily expand very quickly through alliances and have great resources through the, from the Caspian on over into the Balkans. So it was certainly not out of the question. They're, they've been there before, and they've historically been there. This is the smallest Turkey's ever been following World War I in history. They've, they've, the Ottoman Empire reached from uh, Austria, all the, from Vienna, all the way over into the stands. So, yeah. Yes, I thought it was a fascinating book. I was a little surprised and disappointed that he didn't get into globalization and how that affects uh, the economic outlook and uh, probably as important, if not more importantly, cultural outlook because the millennials of today will be the leaders of the century, uh, particularly in the mid-century. And I, I personally think that they're going to have a very different mindset than he describes in the book. You're talking about a lowering of a nationalism psyche? Is that what you... 
Yes, lessening. but he, he didn't talk about globalization. Either he touched on it lightly or didn't talk about it at all. I, th- I think that's huge I, I, yeah. economically because a lot of the military, if I can use the word adventurism, you know, these military adventures that he is uh, describing, they require a lot of resources, A. B, it requires political will to make these things happen. In the United States, I'm 61, so I can speak to, for my kids and uh, my in-laws, they they have a very different mindset about that. the the, the conflict that that's on their mind is not World War II, the Cold War, which we won both. It's the it's the Iraq War, mm-hmm. and most of them says, uh, no more of that. Thanks. And, and he he touches on what you're what you're saying, and I think you're right. It's for the the climate now. He he asks the reader in a way to pull back and say look at the genetics of a nation almost. And he ma- he makes the case, and I don't necessarily agree with it, that America was born as a war country and is an ultimately a country of warriors. And he makes a case that 20% of the last century we've been at war, 100% of this century we're in now we've been at war. That's who we are. And I don't, I'm not saying I believe that at all. I'm saying that he said that on page 32, I think. Um, no, page 40. Uh, during the 20th century, the United States was at war 15% of the time. The second half of the 20th century is 22% of the time. And since the beginning of the 21st century, uh, the United States has been constantly at war. America was born out of war and has continued to fight to this day. So that's that's what he, his case is. I, does that change? Do I hope my daughters are warriors? No. I, you know, that's not their millennial. It's they are, I hope that they grow up in a world that doesn't seek that 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 approach. But he makes the case that we can't stop the track we're on, sort of. But right or wrong, yes. You talked about the countries protecting or moving to their natural interest in protecting those. Uh, many of the borders were reset or set after World War II. Mm-hmm. They're not all of them are not natural fits. Absolutely. Does he really see those kind of? Going back to their original locations, he, he does. He does draw the point on what you're talking about in terms of the Balkans, in terms of the um, Croatia, the, the Yugoslavia being drawn as a completely arbitrary means, and the only reason it remains stable, and the Middle East also. But and the only stabilizing factor in that area was Tito and was the 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 communist regimes once they're pulled off we saw what happened in bosnia we saw what happened in herzegovina and those areas so but he doesn't get into the borders in in the arab in the arab world that you're absolutely right especially at saudi arabia even so miss gill does friedman talk at all about how nuclear weapons play into these power struggles in the next hundred years? His case that he makes is that although when he talks about the war, the growing war with an allied Japan and Turkey against the U.S. and Poland, that although those countries will have nuclear weapons, they would not use them because of this basically mad, the assured destruction argument that has kept us at bay today. Um, on, a, on a side note on that, though, in reference to what's going on in Ukraine, uh, my fiance Natalie and I did an article for CNN on looking at the at, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had the Budapest Agreement, which was an agreement between the United States, Britain, and Russia, with Belarus, 
with Ukraine and with Kazakhstan, saying those three countries would give up their nuclear weapons that they had through the Soviet Union. And they, and they willingly gave them up, but they signed an agreement that said that their borders would be protected, that they would, be, they would be remain sovereign countries. What happened last year, earlier this year, Putin said, we're going to take Crimea. What happened to the Budapest Accord? It's gone. You have members of the parliament in Ukraine, not fractionalized, not, not, not off on the edges. You have leading party people saying the only way that we can ex- express is, our self-interest is through re- regaining nuclear weapons, which we're allowed to do because Russia has broken that accord. If that were to happen, that would be bad enough. What would happen then? Belarus would, would acquire nuclear weapons, probably borrowing them from allowing the Russians to be on Belarusian soil. Then you've got nuclear weapons on a NATO border with, with Poland. And the scary fact is that the other where three people wrote it, the third being Dr. Hall, who heads the Nuclear Security Institute at UT, there are 30 countries, approximately, that could, within a year, year and a half, have nuclear weapons. They have the technology. They, the only reason they're not is because they've signed on to this, non, this nuclear nonproliferation treaty that says we won't. If that begins to unravel, which we're seeing the possibility, real possibility in Ukraine, the whole thing, and then you're going to have a nuclear Turkey, a nuclear Korea, a nuclear both North and South, nuclear South Africa will regain it. You have an explosion of nuclear weapons which all of a sudden that assured destruction, that's a dangerous roll of the dice. He doesn't address that. And I think that, if that were to happen, that would change everything going forward from a national interest, because how do you contain it once it's there? So. Thank you. I thought there were many things in this book that sound at least surprising, Star Wars, explosions in the space and all this thing. But in the very beginning of the book, when he's talking about bringing the focus back to looking at national interest, I thought it was a very good, very well-made point, especially with everything that is going on in Russia. In the very second chapter, he's talking about the Russian Empire trying to regain its influence and create buffer zones between the West and Russian borders. And he's specifically talking about the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, and Poland as those areas that Russia is going to try to push its influence in. And the fascinating thing to me that this was written in 2008, and he's laying out a scenario of how exactly if Russia would like to do something with politics, how they would do it. By financing organizations in those states that are pro-Russian, then by imposing economic sanctions, and then by drawing the military. That's exactly what's going on in Ukraine. It's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. So I think even though there are many things in this book that are probably very questionable, the logics of looking back at the national interest, it does make sense because that's exactly what's going on in Ukraine right now. And you see the the Russian people embracing that. Putin's numbers have never been higher. And his 89, 90% approval rating. And he was down, if I'm not mistaken, before all this happened, he was on his heels. There were protests in Moscow, the economy and all this. There's an embedded desire for that self-interest protection, if not empire. So, yeah. Their comments. Going back to your point, sir, about the war, is that part of who we are as a country? And I, yeah, I, don't, I, don't know that, I don't know that it is. I, I, I do think we are a country that understands our role and that our role is to stop 
sometimes to stop evil, like we did in World War II. And it, the motivating factor to, to engage in war has been either to stop communism or to stop dictators, I think, in the past you know, 60 years of our, of our conflicts. Um, whether or not, but do we even have the will to do that today? I don't know. Would we stop? Would we, even though Lithuania is a NATO member, would we go to war today for that if Russia reached out? I don't know. If they reached into Poland, would we? I think probably so. I think Poland would be one that we have, would have the national will to do. Um, but other countries, I, I don't know. I think we're, we're in a position to – we're tired of being overseas. We're tired of boots on the ground. So. It's, I think it's dangerous and simple-minded to extrapolate from any current situation and current tendencies. And ec- economics – economists do this all the time yeah. with very mixed results. Yeah, and yeah. I think history, history like life, is messy. And one factor here is leaders. Leaders make a big difference. Yes. They can make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Hitler made a big difference. Take Hitler out of the story, and that and the 30s. Is mm-hmm. Take Roosevelt out of the story, the 30s. Take Churchill out of the story, and the, you know everything's mm-hmm. different. So, and these you can't predict necessarily. Yeah. So I think there are real limits. And while it may be fun to have these games and mm-hmm. it's, there's, it's not worthless sure but i just think the extrapolation from current trends is you know yeah that's a good point that's a very good point so. and he, he makes the case that the the 2028 presidential election will be decisive in that whoever is elected if it's someone who's willing to take on immigration and say we have to have a workforce which then sets us on a course that leads that it, but it's decisive on the electorate and as far as who, who's in office at that time. So, so get your bumper sticker ready for 2028. Uh, so. <laughs> There's a book called Shock of Gray. Have you heard of it? No. It talks about no. the declining populations of certain countries, um, Spain and Japan in particular, okay. are, are going to be needing a lot of immigrants and mm-hmm. facing. So... It's hmm. not just the United States that's. Chinese can go to Japan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the North they get along so well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, yeah. and the, 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 if you read any chapter in this book, read the one on population and technology. It's fascinating to look and see what the shifts are going to be and how that plays out. He talks about traditional values, and that's something we talk about all the time in the South, and uh, and and he talked about the changes that will inevitably happen to the, that value system based on population changes. And it, the, his connections to that and everything will, will disturb some folks, but others it, it will be liberating. But the things, things change based on the economic drivers, based on population, based on number of children, based on how long an adult is in the workforce and how long the life expectancy is. And all those have profound effects on our Judeo-Christian value system. So, well, what are his conclusions in that regard? Uh, he says that um, issues such as gay marriage become less and less of an issue because the the need for procreating in a family is not it's on the decline. And so, if if procreation is not the issue of the marriage, then the gender of the marriage ultimately doesn't matter. That's his point. I'm not speaking for Mayor Burchett or for anyone else. I'm speaking for. <laughs> The George Friedman. Thank you. <laughs> so, but any, any other comments? 
Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.